Hello, hello, and welcome to the King Heroes Journey podcast. I'm here with Brandon Sterling so far. We're also, uh, I hope we're going to be joined by John Snyson from The Economic Truth. And uh, you might be familiar with Brandon already. He's been on here. Is this your maybe fourth or even more? Time oh, gosh, is this my fifth or fourth time? I don't know. Yeah. Is yeah. this a record for uh, King Hero? Ah, uh, let's see. It's it might be approaching a record. It might be <laughs> approaching a record. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so, yeah, we were we were definitely very much hoping to have a conversation today about the differences. And look, we got we got lots of people interested, of course, in the two perspectives. One, like I'll just talk a little bit about this before we get started. Is that uh, you know I actually went to Anarchapulco. That's where I met John Snyson. And that's a whole culture of anarcho-capitalists, how they call themselves, voluntarists. And I could actually relate to a lot of the philosophy because I was born and raised by entrepreneurs who broke out of a lot of the system and uh, used the opportunity to just be independent and create and get the value out of that. So I was the direct recipient of that through my parents. And then, so I could relate to it. Like, for example, if we just chat for a few minutes, see if John comes on. Um, when I was at the event, the first Anarchapulco that I went to in, uh, it was five minutes before the pandemic hit. And, uh, and then, so my workshop, they don't like, they didn't pay us for workshops. They didn't pay our way. They didn't pay our hotel, but we were presenters. But unlike a lot of other places where it can be weird to market yourself, it was totally encouraged so if you're out and about and talking up your workshops and handing out flyers and selling people on, on coming to them, then they were completely supportive of that. So that was a beautiful thing because otherwise sometimes people, we were talking about marketing before we got on, can look at that like it's a kind of inherently evil thing, <clears throat> just like money or anything that people position that stuff onto. And so that was really refreshing to me. I was actually able to be very successful in, in doing that, got a great turnout for my workshop and people bought a bunch of books and I went home ahead even for all I had invested in it. So there's there are definitely positive things, but the negative thing that might be there is just the, the doomsday, right? And this is something you've identified so closely and um, and it's been such a relief <laughs> for me not to carry the weight of the doomsday anymore. And, you know, because you say from my perspective, that if you let fear drive you in any way, then you're going to get something that reflects that fear. And it could be success and it could be money and it could be things that you think you want, but you're going to be empty on the other side and you will have the life drained out of you in the process compared to when you can be driven to something because it's important, because it's your purpose, because, you know, like the Bible says, why did, why did, uh, or, you know, tell them who sent me when it was it Moses said to God who uh, who sent me in it was it Exodus and then God said tell them I am sent you yeah. and that's yeah. the potential right to be able to do that work from not not fear and uh, but neither looking over or looking past the reality of things because I think that's where people get like oh I'd be irresponsible if I didn't have two years of groceries and a generator and all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> I personally, like we were talking about last time, I don't prep. Um, now, there are some things I do have. Probably won't talk about that on camera, but 
<laughs> when it comes to like uh, prepping food, stuff like that, I mean, yeah, I have a little bit of storable food here and there. It's nothing significant. Maybe mm -hmm. it lasts me like a month or two, but mm -hmm. I've always had the thought that as long as I have faith and I'm following God's word and being a, um, a godly acting person, I'm not going to have to worry about where my food's going to come from. And, you know, I had an extreme case of that when I was younger, you know, when I got down to $40, you know, at one point in my life, I was actually down to $4 in my checking account. And uh, I was living on, you know, eggs and ramen, but I always knew God was going to provide me a meal and a roof over my head, no matter what was going on in my life. So to this day, I still believe that whole hundred percent. And I don't, like you're saying, I don't let the fear make my decisions. I'm not going to plan around fear or some type of doomsday. Um, you know, it's just, it's never been my style. And I really just don't feel the need for that. Yeah, fair enough. So John is here. Yay. <laughs> I'm going to bring him on. Do you want to give me a thumbs up, John, if you're ready? You're ready. Okay, there we go. Excellent. Okay, so I'm going to take this banner down because I think you guys have your names up. So that's good. Welcome, John. I'm so glad you could make it. Yeah, uh, glad I could make it too. Sorry, I was just uh, had to repair my dog fence. I'm bearing in a fiber to my house. So. Ah, okay, good, <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah. well, I'm glad that's uh, that's handled. And uh, so I'd like to introduce you to Brandon Sterling. He's the creator, Sterling. He's the creator of the Safe Haven Co. Portfolio Management. And Brandon, this is John, who is, I, as I mentioned, we met at Anarchapulco in um, 2019. Was it, uh, was it not? It was just, yes. Yeah, it was 2019. Yeah, 2019, just on the heels of the big uh, lockdowns. Or was that 2020? Well, 22, uh, it was the 2020. Uh, I think we met in 2019, though. And then you contacted me and uh, like, right. It was like right uh, when the lockdowns were happening that you contacted me. I remember exactly. And we were talking about what was going on there. Yeah, and you did yeah. a bunch of consulting with me, and I've sent a bunch of people your way in the in the process. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and uh, John Snyson, you are a published author of two books and the creator of. Let me get back to my notes. Too many things going on here. Oh boy, there we go. Of um, theeconomictruth.org, and you have a podcast, and you show up regularly with Tim. Um, what's his last name? Uh, actually, I don't do any uh, more with Tim anymore. Okay. We just shut that down. But I'm actually doing my own, uh, which is the economictruthreport.org. So I have like both interviews and, and reports on there. Very good. Hello yeah. to Jose and Billing Tonobera here. All right. Well, let's get into it. We were going to talk about uh, is there a financial economic collapse happening or not? Because for me, it's been, uh, and, and many people around me, it's been a kind of confusing time because mm -hmm. Brandon has a markedly different message than you and uh, a bunch of my friends have had. And um, so I'm so curious to see what are the points that you guys would agree on. We were just chatting a little bit about narco-capitalism and uh, Brendan said he resonates with that uh, in some ways. And then what are the points that maybe are not in agreement and uh, and then possibly coming to some kind of conclusions is always fun. <laughs> there, yeah, so, I love it. Yeah, good. Good for you. I'm glad you were both game. 
And then I'll just repeat, Brandon said, this is not a debate. This is a conversation. So we can think about it more collaborative rather than combative. And that's always a beautiful thing. Perfect. So yeah, yeah, really good. Where would you guys like to start? What's uh, what's a good first talking point? I don't know. Let's uh, let's start from uh, like what uh, what we think of uh, like current situation, like where we're in, where where we think it might be going. Uh, uh, maybe that's a good start, and then we could go from there. Talk about systemic things and all that kind of uh, beautiful things, and see uh, where we where we end up at. I don't know if that's a uh, good approach or not or uh, or if we want to go into some history maybe maybe uh, like we got to start in the present go to the past and then look at the future maybe i think we should talk about where we are in the macro economic environment right now uh before we get into anything yeah. else so present yeah yeah so go for it then if you want to take off with that brenton and then yeah. Tanya could respond yeah 100 percent yeah, I did talk about that last time I was on, um, but in a nutshell, we are in quantitative tightening, uh, really in most of the Western countries now, but I'm, what I'm talking about mostly is the U.S., okay, because when we're talking about macro, we have to definitely include the U.S. at the top of that list. Um, so in the U.S. in particular, we are in quantitative tightening, have been over a year now. So money supply is going down, uh, interest rates are going up, right? And because of that all happening at once, we're in a deflationary period right now. And we're probably going to see that continue from the leading indicators that I follow, the deflationary symptoms and consequences. It's probably going to go on for the next few months at least. I don't want to say it's going to go on for a year or two because we don't really know that far out. But what I can see right now in front of us, it's definitely going to be continuing the next months. So, you know, it, what does that involve the indicators I look at? Well, that involves what supply managers are doing right now. Um, and from what I can see, there's sentiment on uh, inventory, stuff like that is just not looking good in the next few months so but in the long term you know if we're talking about what's going to happen in a year or two from now that's a little harder to say no one can truly say this is what's exactly what's going to happen and uh john would you like to respond yeah no for sure so like i i see of course uh, very similar things i see a contraction in the monetary supply and, and the other times that have ever happened throughout history is actually the 1930s uh, that was the uh, first ever uh, contraction, and there hasn't been a real contraction ever since. Um, so you're seeing that, and and that, of course, deflation is the enemy to the modern day monetary system because uh, if you get deflation in a, a debt based, uh, in interest based system, uh, you have to have a constant growth in in money supply and in debt. So when that gets cut off, uh, you're gonna have uh, collapses everywhere because nobody there's not enough dollars uh, everywhere to pay off all the debt basically. So we're running on a shortage of uh, the US dollars or Canadian dollars that are around because uh, there's a deflation in uh, the digital money supply. Uh, and so what you're seeing is uh, just a regular uh, business cycle. Uh, but this time, it's not just a business cycle. It's, you know, the housing market is uh, is teetering, you know, on an epic bubble. Uh, and then you have uh, a, a lot of other uh, debt, like credit cards, you have uh, um, 
other household debt like car loans are collapsing right now uh, especially in the united states it's a massive deflationary pressure of course so so what i see there is that deflationary pressure and then uh, you got to remember all of the collateral uh, the fake collateral on top of that which is derivatives uh, like clo cdos uh, aesbs uh, mbss cmbs whatever uh, collateral, and then of course we didn't even talk about the uh, uh, current collapsing uh, commercial uh, uh, mortgage sector in in uh, multifamily and in uh, big uh, uh, big commercial buildings and uh, malls and so on. Uh, so what what is currently happening is that you have this contraction, and and the monetary system cannot have a contraction like this because it doesn't work. Uh, what it needs is a constant growth of constant adding of debt. It's like a Ponzi scheme, right? So you need constant new people to get into debt. That's why in Canada, if we didn't have all the immigration that we have, um, we would actually have our monetary system completely collapse. And uh, we would see mass debt defaults because there's not enough Canadian dollars because of deflation, that there's less uh, supply of currency to pay off the the debt that uh, there's always more interest uh, that are available than if you paid off all debt, there will always be interest there to pay off. So we'd be bankrupt, basically, all of us. Uh, so if you have this contraction, um, what we're seeing now, for example, you just had cab, uh, uh, the Canadian government put out the grocery <laughs> helping bill to everybody, uh, because what what the problem was, it's it was a debt uh, bubble by commercial bank increasing, uh, you know, their uh, their lending uh, through creation of commercial um, commercial uh, debt, uh, but th that created asset bubbles, so in the financial markets and in and housing and so on. But what happened during COVID was a massive stimulus of government. Uh, so government did deficit spending. They create debt out of thin air by issuing bonds. And then so what happens is that that debt now actually um, has to be, uh, of course, repaid. Uh, and then, uh, but that debt also got then spent because they had the programs like CRB and other programs that massively increased the uh, currency supply available and that was a direct impact because it's it's given to the people right in your hand and you go out and spend it into the economy and so that's why like a lot of people believe it was supply strange because of covid shutdowns and all that stuff uh i i saw like the massive government spending as the biggest contributor actually to the to the increase because why isn't it coming down why isn't prices like dropping drastically now uh, I, I'm not seeing it. Like I'm purchasing um, uh, copper products. I'm purchasing uh, my uh, low voltage stuff. So I'm not seeing it at all uh, in my, like uh, I'd rather actually, it's actually up another 10%, uh, the prices that I'm seeing on my stuff. And then if you go to the grocery store as well. So uh, I have a little bit different, like I know I, I was on another podcast as well, where he, uh, he was adamant that it was all about the supply chain constrictions and everything that was put on during COVID that created the delayed, like the supply and demand problem. Uh, but that is actually out of the picture now on, on the 90% of at least what I'm doing. I, I don't have any supply strains. So, and prices are uh, way above what they were. Like they went up 100%, come down like 2%, and then now they're up at 10% again. So they're actually above what it was at the peak. So, yeah, I, I think what's going to happen after that is uh, the government is, well, they're kind of panicking now with all these uh, packages that are coming out both provincially and and uh, nationally. And so they're going to keep on doing stimulus. So it's like basically they come in with their, mo they, in 2020, they came with monetary bombers because they shut down the economy. 
but in uh, like during now, they'll come and monitor bombers. Then they will probably try to nuke uh, after one point just to like massively stimulate the economy with uh, programs like that again to try to you know fix the uh, the issues and uh, see if that works. But if it doesn't, then uh, so it, we can have massive deflation, like Brandon said. But then we're going to have a panic by the governments because they can't have that uh, contraction in supply because then there's nobody to pay that. Well, I don't believe it's a massive deflation coming. Um, it's been a slow, gradual deflation. Um, and if you look at lumber prices, for example, uh, they're significantly down the last year compared to where it was back in 2020. You know, down more than 50% on the futures price. Um now, I'm not saying the store prices will always reflect that, like John is talking about with copper. But if you look into it, it's uh, those things are manipulated by the retailers, right? So again, I mean, it's uh, it depends where you're getting your stuff from. But if you if you follow the lumber price, for example, it's gone down significantly since 2020. Uh, copper has gone down significantly in in the futures market, right? So. Now, you can get delivery um, on the futures contract. So instead of going to the store, you could get copper delivered through a futures contract and you get in at a decent price instead of going through the middleman at, let's say, Lowe's uh, or Home Depot. Not saying that's practical for everyone. It depends on your situation. You might not have the storage available for that kind of stuff, right? But, but yeah, I, I don't believe there's a massive deflation coming. I think... Uh, from what I see, the housing market will actually be pretty okay this year. And in the U.S., uh, building permits are up significantly, and that's usually a leading indicator of where the housing market is going in the next 6 to 12 months in the U.S. I was just going to jump in with uh, St. Lady's comment about lumber prices not going down. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I was wondering if it's literally just a bandwagon and giving all of the retailers license to keep jacking their pricing up, right? When the when the basis for it isn't really there. What do you think, John? Well, so again, it's it's a, it's again a supply of currency. Like if you go to Bank of Canada and look at their uh, their currency supply, it's actually like their actual physical coinage is even up. Uh, and uh, like currency that exists in the economy is still drastically good. Remember, we added, we doubled the supply of money in Canada uh, during COVID, uh, basically, with uh, the government going from one trillion in official unofficial debt to two trillion. Uh, so that is c currency that gets spent and stimulated directly into the real economy. Uh, and so that's why you're seeing a, a lot of people, you know, still. Uh, like we, we're still suffering the consequences of an oversupply of currency. Uh, there's still velocity in in our currency, which means that we're spending it still. Uh, at uh, But when velocity comes down, prices should go down. Uh, but the thing is, uh, when we look at the real economy, uh, prices uh, over time, for example, if you look at lumber prices over the last 10 years, uh, like lumber prices have drastically gone up, for example. It's... Uh, if you look at uh, it was 268.58 in uh, 2013, and now it's basically double of that, right? So it's a hundred percent increase uh, in in the lumber prices. When you look at a proper uh, longer length in, in the macro specter, and not just look at a selected time period, of course. So uh, uh, the increase of currency has drastically gone up. It's doubled uh, basically over that time, and 
and we see the uh, reflections in the markets themselves. Now it's up and downs, of course, when when you trade it in, in the markets. But uh, but again, if all commodities, if you go and look at them and drag them out in long longer period, uh, except for silver, actually, silver is the only one that has not uh, hit above or like its uh, 80s peak, uh, which is quite interesting. Uh, but other than that, like all the uh, other commodities that I track, uh, they uh, they are heavily, <laughs> heavily up for their from, uh, you know, like on a 10 year uh, scale, of course. Uh, and then if you go uh, 2008, that's another 15 years. So uh, it was only in 2008 when we really started with quantitative easing to try to just buy toxic assets like the central banks bought them. And then what they're doing is basically there's letting them run off uh, their balance sheet by uh, it not being uh, paid by the government. Uh, so it just uh, disappears off their balance sheet without a payment. Uh, and so they're not even selling them. They only like the Federal Reserve only sold three official uh, mortgage backed securities and two officially uh, treasuries during uh, like the last couple of years now. So like the, the, the quantitative tightening that is like selling these assets, they're not being sold at all. They're just being run off the balance sheet by letting them uh, basically uh, just go out their uh, five year or one year or two year uh, term that they have on those uh, assets and not being repaid because the the fed doesn't care it can print uh whatever it wants in bank reserves and then buy whatever assets it wants so uh brendan were you wanting to share something i can put it up on the screen if you like yeah i was just showing the lumber pricing okay so so yeah as you can see i mean it's down significantly from where we were obviously yeah, it was up dramatically, uh, 2020, 2021. Um, but now we're almost back to the price it was back in 1995, actually. Um, so, you know, again, if you go to Home Depot, it might not reflect this because you're going through a middleman. But mm -hmm. understand, I mean, when it comes to these things, even if you have to deal with the high price at the store, you can't put on a hedge. Um, to offset, you know, the high cost you're maybe paying for at the store. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So is there any actual difference in your opinions there or are you guys on the same page? Um, I think for the most part we are. I just, uh, I don't agree with everything that John just said, you know, but, um, you know, when it comes to money printing, the Fed, technically doesn't print money they just create money through loans stuff like that right no they create uh, they create reserves they don't print anything right so yeah. I, I just wanted to get that out there because i think some the government literally... prints the government deficit spending does though because it actually creates real currency and it's through debt uh, so that's what i was talking about yeah but i mean look people have been saying the housing market's been in a bubble for decades right yeah. and uh, 20... I, the yeah. That's the thing. Is it really a bubble if it's been this way for a long, long time? And certain level there is based on mortgages and stuff like that. But if, yeah. if you actually look what's going on uh, with the big banks in particular, like JP Morgan, they haven't slowed down mortgages really. In fact, they're healthy enough to keep going, rolling out mortgages, continuing this year and next year. Uh, the Federal Reserve just did a st stress test with them. And, uh, you know, they said they're not going to slow down the mortgages anytime soon. So I don't, 
So how, how many mortgages does actually JP Morgan do though? Because they're not in the mortgage industry. It's mostly like regional banks that do the mortgage lending. Oh, JP Morgan does lend. Yeah, but not, not, not very much compared to the regional banking system. Well, it's, it's not a big segment of their business overall because yeah. they are also involved in investing banking. When it comes to regional banks, they're kind of more stuck with what they can do, right? So they're going to typically give you more segment into uh, or this, uh, a bigger portion of their overall business is going to be in lending compared to JP Morgan. But JP Morgan does do a significant amount of mortgages. Yeah, the, the, you got to remember that J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and and uh, State Street, other big banks in the United States, uh, talking about here, there, they're GSIBs, so they are getting backstopped by, of course, the uh, the FSB's regulation on those banks being bailed out. And what we saw in 2019, for example, this was before COVID, by the way, and you saw a massive stress in the in the bond market. There was actually banks on the teetering right then. Uh, because of uh, problems in the debt markets, and they had to get bailed out. Uh, actually, significantly, Deutsche Bank, everybody on that GSIB list, uh, which is all the big banks in the United States, got bailed out uh, by the Federal Reserve because they had to uh, backstop the financial system. It was it was teetering in 2019, and then luckily we got COVID, so we forgot about uh, you know the massive bailout that then happened during uh, this uh, the insane quantitative easing. And so on, because uh, debt then collapsed. Uh, uh, you got to remember, in 2017, uh, I wrote the book about the Canadian economy. I predicted that the markets was on the teetering, and you had Home Capital Group going bankrupt in 2017, being bailed out with uh, 1.2 billion dollars, no, at 13 billion dollars by Warren Buffett at the time. So that uh, one of the biggest mortgage lenders in Canada failed. Well, the the fun for, uh, part about that is that they cut slashed interest rates down to zero, so that you know. Uh, made it a little bit better. But now we got to remember during COVID, we got told by uh, Tiff McClem uh, that just like, yeah, just go out and spend as much as you can. We're not going to raise interest rates until late 2023. Uh, and then guess what happened? Uh, so now everybody's sitting on those loans. Maybe there's like one, two, three, four year terms, uh, five year terms, right? And then what's going to happen when those come due? Uh, when you had a interest of two, now we're going up to five. That's a 250% increase on your payment. Uh, how are we going to deal with that, for example? And that is coming up uh, in the very near future, two, three years from now, uh, actually. So uh, that's going to have a significant turmoil on top of uh, the current pressure. And uh, like, you've got to remember, Canada is the fifth biggest uh, uh, nation when it comes to private debt to GDP in the world. Uh, the only other countries that are on the top there are big socialist countries like Norway and Sweden uh, and uh, Finland, France, uh, and they're just heavily indebted because people are, are having to pay, pay an atrocious amounts of taxes in those countries, like 50 to uh, 80% of whatever they pay uh, goes to the government. And so what do they do to keep their living standards? Well, it was perfect. Uh, it's uh, all just rack up a whole bunch of debt. And now you're seeing in Norway, uh, I talk to people all across Norway right now, uh, and Norway has the second highest debt levels, private debt levels in the world, and their people are struggling to pay uh, anything and have any uh, any you know money to pay for even food and so on in Norway. So, uh, and, and you got to remember this this bubble is not just Canada; like it's it's in the most Western countries today. 
Uh, and um, we have been told by the central banks that everything is fine. You know, just uh, just don't look over look over at the debt levels because throughout history and throughout you know, the, there's been so many debt bubbles throughout history. Uh, and uh, one of the uh, the first ones was in the Song Dynasty in 1024. Uh, and uh, they created, you know, currency, and then they had a, a huge debt bubble, and they had a, a, a economic miracle, it was called. And so, what happened uh, during that time? People, you know, you got a, a middle class, you can call it at the time, that uh, you know started buying houses and so on with the debt, because without debt, we would either be poor or rich, uh, basically, because you would have the asset owners and the the people that would have to be renters uh, in the economy, right? So. Um, without the debt, there would be no middle class, basically. And so they created a middle class and it was all fine. But then suddenly, uh, at one point, uh, you get to the point where people start to realize, people, for example, a big portion of the, uh, the economy or of the demographics start to retire. And then they want to start spending that money and start selling their assets. Well, who are they, who's going to buy all the assets? Uh, do you think all the millennials uh, are going to buy all those assets? Do you think we're going to buy the houses we can afford uh, all those houses and the high prices in the markets right now. Uh, do you think that's like uh, probable that uh, that could happen? Because the the baby boomers have to retire, and uh, they have to sell assets to retire, like treasuries and stocks and and their houses, because that's their uh, middle class mostly has their actually their houses as their retirement for, uh, plan. So they're gonna have to sell that uh, very soon uh, in order to actually be able to retire. So yeah. I, uh, I'm, I'm very worried about uh, that. Like, I know I'm, uh, it, it's uh, like doom and gloom here, but uh, I, I think it's important to have uh, both sides of the perspective. And I, I really appreciate uh, Brand's perspective as well. Okay. Yeah, I, I do believe as a society, we, and I talk about this all the time, I think people should avoid personal debt as much as possible. Um, I think debt for business is good. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the whole American dream that we've been pitched, you know, the white picket fence, the mortgage, um, unfortunately that has trapped us in poverty, the, the middle class, you know, uh, it's, it's a big problem. And, you know, I think people in my age group are starting to get away from that kind of high personal debt ratio compared to, let's say, the older generations. Um, so I, I do see some optimism in that. Um, but at the same time, I do see plenty of people getting mortgages. And, uh, you know, I think they're going to have to learn it the hard way when they realize how expensive it is to... Because they think, well, if I get a mortgage, it's going to be cheaper than rent. But if you actually do the math, a lot of the times it's going to be more expensive than rent. And if you would have said it, invested money and rented at the same time, you would have been better off if you do the math on certain investments. But yeah, I, I just, uh, I don't like that people have their nest egg, their biggest investment in their house. I mean, that's just a horrible idea. I don't know why anyone would do that, but that's, that's the lie that we've been pitched. And unfortunately, society has bought into that. Yeah, your house is an asset is, uh, is one of the biggest <laughs> lies. It's the biggest liability. Um, that's the one thing I do agree with Robert Kiyosaki. Um, everything else kind of is like, okay, dude. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, for the basic stuff, he, he does get it right. And that's one of them, you know. So I, I caution people away from making their house their, their nest egg. Uh, it's not a good idea. 
Yeah. No, it's all good with uh, getting rid of debt, but the problem is when you get rid of debt in uh, the monetary system that is debt-based and need debt in order to actually function, uh, when you can't create any more new debt, what are you going to do? Um, uh, you can't pay uh, like all the debt that is in existence, and then like it will severely contract. Now the problem is that in a perfect world, you know, the, the nobody would actually intervene in that, and they would let it happen. So we would all actually have way lower prices, and and we would uh, be better off. But of course, uh, the government has too much debt that we we created our go uh, governments. So. There's way too much debt in them, so they they're gonna just keep on like uh, st stimulating the economy, trying to create more debt in order to prop up the system. Uh, so that's that's the the biggest problem here is that our, our system itself is a Ponzi scheme, and so when you have that, like you can't have lower debt levels, like it would just collapse in on itself very quickly. Someone just asked in the chat, Ian, uh, is debt the issue or is it massive debt? Uh, you know what? This is an interesting thing because it always starts with a little amount of debt, and then over time, uh, like it just—it's uh, a snowballing effect because more and more had to create debt. And and right right now, you see like what's called the shadow banking system. Think about like places like Canadian Tire, uh, Home Depot, all of them—they have their own financing structures, right? Because uh, they have to create debt in order to prop up the system. And then uh, when they create more debt, we we can't even afford uh, you know the prices in their stores because. Uh, there, uh, the prices are too high because of too much money, uh, like currency, have been created uh, into existence. So it's a vicious cycle, and uh, it starts with you know small amounts of debt always in these systems, and then it just like over time, everybody gets involved on the debt train because you got to indebt everybody. But the, when there's no more people to indebt, what are you going to do, right? Like, uh, I guess you can indebt yourself even more. But the problem is at one point, uh, inflationary pressure and all this stuff gets too high. Uh, and then you're going to have that wake up moment that takes usually one uh, one month to six months. And uh, that's called a hyperinflationary event. Or it could be overnight during a uh, bank holiday where it basically says, well, we have too much debt now. So we got to lower. Uh, we basically got to put our debt levels uh, uh, down. So what we need to do is we need to um, uh, refinance everything. And so uh, overnight, this has happened so many times. And um what happens is uh, in Argentina, for example, a, a friend of mine, he had his dad in the 1980s. He had all his life savings saved up in Argentinian pesos. And so he thought it was all set to retire. He was a, a, a business owner. He was uh, you know, doing pretty good. Uh, in the 80s, they had a uh, bank holiday. And overnight, uh, the government devalued the currency. Uh, so it was suddenly his 100%, let's say, of purchasing power was now 25%. Uh, and so he was he was done for and uh, he uh, he uh, his life savings basically dropped 75 percent overnight. Um, and, and that happens. And then you could have a hyperinflationary event where people is like, well, this is too much. Like my Canadian dollar isn't buying me as much anymore. So they tried to get it. Look at what's happening in Turkey right now, for example, and in Lebanon and Venezuela and Zimbabwe and Sudan and um, uh, in parts of um, uh, South America right now. Um, is that people are just trying to get rid of their currency units as fast as possible. And what happens is you've got that velocity coming in. Uh, and then uh, because this is this is like an inflationary shock that happens, let's say that everybody wants to get rid of their currency and like, what are we going to buy to you know get out of it? You could see it in the stock markets. The stock market just rips off. Like in Venezuela, the stock market performed insanely good, like uh, millions of percent. Uh, you know, during the hyperinflation. But the problem was that the stocks didn't pr protect the purchasing power by far. 
because uh, the, the value of the currency dropped even uh, way uh, too, too fast in order for the, uh, the stocks to actually protect their value. Uh, so people are people are just panic, and then you see store prices going up. And let's say when you get a shock like 100% interest, 100% um, price rise in in groceries, you know people are going to be like, well, I'm going to take my salary and I'm going to buy a lot more this time. And so now we get a supply and demand kind of thing where the supply of currency becomes too great, uh, and then uh, basically, you know, the it's not prices going up; it's just the currency losing uh, drastically value. Anything you want to respond to, Brendan? Yeah, well, I will say it's kind of tough for me to compare, let's say, Argentina's situation to what would come to America because there's a lot that they don't have that we have. And really, we're they were the about, richest country in the world in the 60s. Yes, they well, have that. Well, we're talking about <laughs> economics, right? But really, at the end of the day, the numbers actually don't mean that much. Ultimately, it goes down to military power, right? When it comes to these these particular things, so you know, at the end of the day, um, I don't see the U.S. military power going anywhere in the relative near future. Now, maybe it could be a slow degradation in a 10, 20, 30 year rollout, but again, I mean. We can't apply Argentina's situation to exactly our situation. It's very similar. We, they, we both are rich countries. You got to remember, like what we forget is that actually Venezuela, for example, was one of the richest countries in the world in the '60s. Same with Argentina. So you can't uh, just uh, put that away. That that has nothing to do with it. They were very uh, like heavy commodity currencies. They they made a lot of money and they were very rich and they created socialist. Uh, strategies they uh, increased taxes and spending by the government the government became dependent on the currency and and so when the the fluctuation in the the commodity prices happened suddenly they uh, they had to spend a lot more and then suddenly you get a shock and then uh, people it, it's that shock that that's the thing it's like it comes like in an instant and it might have been a bit foreseeable but the problem is when uh, when you get a shock like that, that comes out when people, for example, when the baby boomers have to start spending a lot of their savings to, you know, into the economy, um, suddenly you can have a, a shock or you could, uh, like I think now, uh, you're start, I start to hear chatter among people that, oh, it's expensive. I can't pay for this. I can't pay for that. Like that's uh, at least people that I know here in here Manitoba that I talk to. Uh, and so, uh, uh, you know, people here in, in my home country, Norway, grocery prices jumped 70 to 100 percent. And the Norwegian krona went from 7.5 to now it sits at 11 uh, to the U.S. dollar. And Norway has a very similar thing with Venezuela. It's a very wealthy oil country, uh, one of the wealthiest by uh, GDP in the world. Uh, and uh, now we have an insane amount of inflation in Norway. People are trying to look for ways to support themselves. The government had to come in and pay 55% of your energy bills because people in Norway uh, couldn't afford to pay their energy bills, which is hydro, by the way. It's it's no hydrocarbons, basically, that we feed our economy on. So it had nothing to do with the war in, in, uh, in Ukraine or anything. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's just that uh, like our currency system itself lives and dies with the trust of the value that it will have. Uh, and of course, you, you were talking about military might. Now, when currencies are starting to go pretty bad, 
the government could just print atrocious amounts of it into hyperinflation and go to war because they just spend a, a ton of it and then they go and murder each other. Uh, so yeah, that could that could definitely happen. Uh, and as it happened, like a lot of these currencies, like this one, uh, which is the Pango, happened that way. Uh, you had the Dinara happened that way, and also the Weimar Republic uh, happened that way, uh, where the the only uh, I talked to a PhD, uh, a, you know, economist from the University of Manitoba, and and one of them said like we really need a war, you know, to save the economy. Uh, because they believe that, you know, the deflation that's happening, we just need to stimulate it by going murdering each other uh, kind of thing. So that's the that's the whole belief system on on the academic front anyways, about, you know, trying to stimulate the economy that is, you know, suffering. I don't think they need a war to be able to stimulate the economy. But yes, that can be one of the use cases of war. And we have seen that over the years uh, in the U.S., but... I, I don't know. When it, when it comes to the stuff I talk about, I don't really talk about the what-if scenarios. I kind of focus on what we can do right now. So, you know, I don't like to speculate when it comes to, okay, well, comparing to this country and that country, this is what's going to happen in the U.S., right? Um, so I'm, I'm kind of careful to do that. And I do appreciate that, you know, in your work that you focus on that end. Um, it's just... Uh, you know, when it comes to the stuff the economists talk about, me as a portfolio manager, I just, I don't listen to any of the stuff they talk about because it really isn't relevant to what I'm doing. And uh, those guys, uh, a lot of the economists, they've been wrong for decades on a lot of stuff. Um, they might be a subject matter expert in their particular field, but, you know, people like hey. Jim Rickards and uh, all these different economists out there, they've been doubling down on the same narratives over and over and over. Yeah, no, it's uh, I I can agree with that. Like, it's uh, it's not about that. Like, what what it is, it's just uh, you know, a general um, uh, smartness of preparing yourself for those events because they they happen very fast. So, like, trying to move, like when, uh, for example, when your trading accounts get shut down because of asset freezes, what are you gonna do? Trying to get out, like, if you're stuck in the banking system with all your assets, for example. Uh, when that happens so you got to take those into account and I, I know a lot of like hedge fund owners and so on and and big uh, wall street people that i interviewed and 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 that i know and all, a lot of them are saying that they always hedge themselves you know with uh with uh, wealth insurance for example which is gold and silver they're heavily you know uh some of them are 20 percent 10 percent five percent uh because they know that you can have these ec economic shocks now we haven't had uh, too many of them in in our lifetime uh, and so uh, it's it's hard for like when you talk to seasonal guys, you know, like the the guys that have been around for 40, 50 years as portfolio managers, you clearly like they have a lot of insights because they've seen uh, similar things before. Uh, so they know, uh, you know, a, a bit about uh, little things and and they can see economic cycles like there's grand economic cycles, you know, like the debt cycles. Right. And and as I w was uh, talking about, you know, you got the grand debt cycle where everybody's indebted. And so. Uh, at one point, you know, there's nobody else to indebt, and then the the system falters, and and we're getting pretty close to that right now, uh, in, in my opinion, anyways. And um, like I I predicted in 2017 that real estate prices will go down, but then they cut the interest rates. Of course, if interest rates start uh, stayed where they were at, and the federal like the Bank of Canada manipulated them, then we might have a very different conversation right now. Right. So I guess my question for you is that if you understand that they manipulate these things, 
why would they let it break, right? No, for sure. Like they, um, they think that they could, you know, fix it, and that's uh, that's what I was talking about. Where, like every time, like look at look at uh, QE in um, 2008. Look at the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. Okay, how many how many percent did it double? Um, you know, in uh, 2008, it went up quite drastically. You know, from the I think it was 800,000 to four trillion. Uh, so that's about five percent. And then um, the next uh, way around, uh, you know, we're up at we were up at all the way at almost nine trillion. Um, and so every time it gets bigger and bigger, um, and that's because there's more and more debt that uh, will be faltering. Now you can't just uh, like sl- uh, wipe the slate on debt. Like if we did the debt jubilee, for example, that'd be fantastic. But you know, then uh, then J.P. Morgan will go bankrupt because uh, like people that own the debt, the treasuries and everything, uh, the uh, uh, the pension owners. Like look at what happened in Zimbabwe, for example. The th- the reason that they went into hyperinflation is because uh, they took over the white uh, you know um, owners of farms there. Uh, and they st- took their uh, basically their their farms, and then they didn't pay the debt, so the debt collapsed, and then uh, they had to print a whole bunch of money to uh, to keep those debt payments going. And so that was the initial shock, for example, uh, in Zimbabwe with you know that type. Like we heard Biden, for example, he can't actually like the debt, like the supposed like uh, debt repayments there. Well, they can't do it. Like uh, Supreme Court said, no, you can't do it. Uh, so the government. Um, will of course try to get in and, and uh, stimulate the economy by you know giving you uh, more and more but at what time are you going to be like well the government basically gives me anything so I, why do i even have to work like uh, like i'm just going to sit at home and receive my ebi and uh, why would i because the government uh, just manipulates things so why do i even need to work like you could just the, the thing is at one point in the economy as well, when you have debt, uh, you can also have like the financial economy becomes very big. Uh, so uh, when you can make my, like currency with currency and you don't have to, you know, have a blue collar job, go out and, you know, dig a trench or or be an electrician, a plumber or, or a carpenter. Why would you want to do that when you could sit at home and make uh, millions of dollars, you know, trading every day? That's perfect. Right. So um, uh, what happens also over time is uh you know, in the French uh, collapse, financial collapse, the Mississippi bubble, that was very prime. Like what happened is that um, over time, everybody just started going into margin debt to buy, you know, the Mississippi company uh, stock. And and so what happened is that uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, debt out there and, and everything on that. And instead of the Lambos, you know, people were buying horse and buggies at the time, that was the status symbol. But what happened in that bubble is that everybody thought that you know everything was fine and um, and everybody was investing. It just oh, it just keeps on going up and up, and uh, I, I think we're fine here. And then suddenly um, there wasn't enough investors to get in anymore, and so the whole Ponzi scheme collapsed. And uh, uh, and then people tried to sell it. You know when when a lot of people start selling it. For example, in the financial markets now, one of the warnings that I have from one of my friends, he's a former Fidelity uh, eight billion dollar fund manager. Uh, Chris Galazio, uh, he's uh, telling me that 80% of all trading today is AI. Uh, so uh, AI follows AI. And when you get uh, everybody wants to sell uh, at the same time uh, in a panic, you know, it could drop pretty quickly. Like markets before wasn't so much driven by technology and by AI and all this stuff. So it was w- way much slower to crash. Like I, I believe this time, and, and we kind of seen it 
like with rapid ups and downs uh, that, you know, that could happen very fast. Like, for example, in in um, Japan is a good example of this in the 80s. So the Bank of Japan actually had to buy, you know, the exchange traded funds. They bought 86.11% of all the exchange traded funds uh, because everybody wanted to sell them, but there was no buyers in the market. Hey, John, is Japan a Commonwealth country? Forgive my ignorance. Are they? No. <laughs> That's a good, uh, good question. I don't think so. And what I'm alluding to there is the difference, I think, between the Commonwealth might. countries and yeah. others that you've been mentioning. Mm -hmm. And um, what, do, what do you think, Brandon? Is there, is there going to be a difference in the, in the way those play out? Well, the Japanese economy is a very different animal to the American or Canadian economy. Um, so, you know, it, I do keep track of it, but at the same time, I don't, I think John wasn't saying this is the end be all. This is, we're going to replicate exactly how the Japanese economy, like he's describing. But, um, you know, I think it's important to look at. I just, uh, I don't see it as, okay, this is exactly how it's going to happen here. So. And what would be the significance of it being a Commonwealth versus another kind of country? Like it, well, it's under Christian. Yeah, go ahead, John. Well, for example, what happened in, 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 uh, in Japan, they were the inventors of quantitative easing, by the way. So what happened there actually happened here later uh, because they had their, what you got to remember is we're in a demographic cliff, right? So like uh, actually population today, and there's a lot of people talking about this finally. Uh, and you got, uh, you had, um, oh, what is his name now have his book harry dent was one of the first ones to start uh, screaming that you know we would have massive uh, deflation now uh, first of all i it's like yeah this guy is crazy because like from what i looked at you know the, the we always go up and and uh that should be but but again when you look at demographics like countries like uh, germany uh, especially japan japan had their demographic cliff in the 80s and it just the, their stock market just recovered you know from uh the 80s top by the way like that's how long it took it, like 43 years. It took the stock market to recover back from a demographic cliff. Like now, so our population is aging in, in the United States, in Canada, in Norway, uh, in Germany, in uh, I believe in England, uh, and, and a few other Western countries were, were quite similar, you know, in the way that uh, the bigger portion of our economy are, uh, you know, uh, aging and are exiting and are, uh, you know, needing uh, to sell assets. And that's what you saw in Japan, what happened there. And then uh, they, the Bank of Japan just went in and bought everything. And then, of course, uh, they spent a whole bunch of currency by by just buying the treasures from the government because there was no buyers. Nobody wanted to buy yen, especially at like negative interest rate. Who wants to buy an investment that yields negative? Um, I, I'm pretty sure that you, Brand, you wouldn't have a, want to have a negative yielding... <laughs> Uh, investment right so you want to make a profit when you when you trade and so on and so um uh yeah it's it's just uh, been a, a, an atrocity there of course in japan and and they can't seem to get themselves out of the right like uh, first of all like 43 years uh if you were like invested in a general stock market and you weren't trading like if you're if you're trading all the time like it's different because you can actually fall markets you could buy low and sell high uh but if you just like retire uh, like put retirement savings away uh, they had to buy, you know, the ETFs because nobody wanted to uh, to uh, buy when they tried to sell them. 
uh, it, it's when you get those shocks, you know, that's that's the big problem. Like we're, we're so derivativized in, in the in the markets today. Like there's, uh, you know, options, there's uh, puts, there's, uh, you know, CLOs, uh, CDOs, futures, like uh, all this. Like there, there, there's certain aspects to certain derivatives that are good, you know, like the commodity futures and so on. But uh, a lot of these other ones are just uh, made up because they're they're trying to securitize assets. Now, I talked to a uh, lady that was in the 2008. Uh, she was a journalist during the 2008 crash. And she uh, her speciality was subprime mortgages. And it was uh, also she also was a journalist on CDOs and and um, and mortgage backed securities during the time. And what she saw is basically they just have to securitize everything. So they have to lend to more and more people and you get worse and worse uh, borrowers because you have to lend to a bigger um, population. And then that is what topples, you know, any debt bubble is when you have to go after, you know, the rotten apples that they know that they wouldn't be able to pay them back. Now, I want to I don't want to call people rotten apples because uh, we're humans. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's what the, the, the bankers have to do. They they do these bubbles all the time and then they come crashing down on them because uh, they basically take uh, you know debt that you have here and then they securitize it and then they resell it for a little profit you know a little interest profit and so on so it's a, that financialization is uh, one of the worst parts of uh, of the global economy today that it has taken over so much because less and less people think that it's valuable to actually you know, go and, and uh, do work. And when that happens, we could all sit around and just make money with money. But uh, who's going to make us, you know, the food that we're going to eat on our tables? That, that'd be a huge problem, right? So I, I see like that. And then, of course, the demographic cliffs, you know. Hey, John. Yeah. Can I, can I jump in just so the Please. question doesn't become uh, irrelevant is yeah. um, about bringing in so many immigrants? Is there a financial kind of a hinge on that? Yeah, that's what, what we need here in Canada. If we don't bring in immigrants, we would uh, collapse. Our debt-based uh, system would collapse because we're in a demographic lift. The white, the general white population, especially, right? Like we're we're not giving uh, you know enough children to the world. Like we're not repopulating ourselves uh, and becoming bigger as a uh, you know a sub race or whatever you call it. We're still human beings, all of us, but. Um, that portion of the population in Canada is not replicating enough to actually like uh, go and then get more debt. So what happens is that that's why we've seen so much immigration is to just prop up the system. And of course, with the demographic cliff happening on the same time, they need more workers uh, to you know have jobs that nobody else wants to take, right? So because they still we still need to serve as old people when they get old and and, and sick. Like you can't just uh, sit and and um, you know be an influencer and so on uh, and uh, you know, you need the nurses to take care of everybody and 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 all the other people. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a big problem. But that's that's what's happening in, in a lot of Western countries. That's why we see the huge infl the immigration push uh, around Western countries. Well, it's a very big concern right now in China, more so than any other country right now. The demographics problem, and that's yeah. why I think the whole BRICS narrative is absolutely ridiculous to me. Um, and I just made a video on China's problems that are happening in real time. If you look at their demographics, they're only producing about, I think it was around 0.6 kids per house. And yeah. that's, it's going lower and lower. Now in the, thanks, thanks government, by the way, that was all government that uh, put in those policies. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. So China has some major issues. And I, I think the whole narrative that China's going to take over the world is just completely ridiculous. And they're... No, the, the only thing that I'm worried about China really is like they have a massive debt collapse right now. It's it's pretty mm -hmm. humongous. They yeah. It started, you know, with the um, uh, oh, what is the, their fund there? Uh, but it was funny. I looked at uh, Modi, Moody's numbers. They started to issue in 2016. They started to issue a whole bunch of mortgage-backed securities. That was with their, you know, ghost cities that went up everywhere. Like it was basically fake, um, yeah. fake growth, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so what happened there is that uh, a lot of people, like in China, was insane. This was a 2018 report that I looked at, and people that like a lot of people own five houses, you know, as a, a just a single investor. Uh, they, and they were probably just average Joe, average uh, Chang, you <laughs> can call that in, in China. So uh, they were buying up these houses. And, and then, of course, you have the debt bubble because too many people then get in, uh, indebted and there's not enough people to indebt anymore. So then you, you get the collapse down, right? Same in the commercial sector. Uh, but yeah, China has a, an insane uh, debt collapse. They had a, like, almost 400% GDP, like total, uh, that was government and private debt in, in uh, and combined. So yeah, like anybody that talks about that uh, are worried that China is the thing. I think it's more about like, let's have a war to, you know, like stimulate this economy. I think that's what more is that we should just attack China kind of thing. That's, that's the whole, like in my view with the war hawks and everybody that sits over in Washington there, that's kind of their narrative, you know, like, let's, uh, let's fix the economy by just uh, uh, putting out some bombs, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a terrible, like, what, uh, you know, when you think about it, like, uh, you could be pretty wealthy if you bet on, like, if you bet on the Russian war, uh, when you buy Raytheon stocks or wherever that would be, you know, you make a lot of money, but you're making a money on, you know, that we're uh, murdering people. So I, yeah, well, really, I'm not a big fan. I saw that coming and I bought wheat contracts. Yeah, that too. Yeah, biggest uh, biggest wheat producer is Ukraine, and then second is uh, Russia. So yeah, so you can monetize on those type of events mm -hmm. without going into the military industrial complex. Yeah, John's saying. So yeah, I don't agree in uh, funding that myself either. Um, but yeah, so the the point is, we need to have more kids, uh, especially in the West. Um, you know, I I think America for the most part, is pretty good compared to the rest of the world when it comes to population growth to, let's say, compared to China or Germany or China or uh, Japan. Yeah. Uh, but there's still room for improvement. We should, of course, keep doing that. And I, I do see um, demographics actually not doing terrible compared to other places in the States. So, you know, that's, uh, that's one of our many strengths that we have in North America. Um, so... You know, I think a lot of it is imported immigration, right? Like a lot of the demographics that are come in is is immigration, right? So we got to well, remember that too. Well, what I was going to allude to was, I think right now we're experiencing a new counterculture where the pendulum just swung so far this way, so far woke, let's call it, mm -hmm. that people are starting to want bigger families than they did, let's say, ten years ago that's starting to become cool again. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. I'm not saying that's going to be a guaranteed fix on the demographics issue, but I do, see, especially where I'm at, um, there's huge families. I mean, it's just like, it's literally ingrained in their, their religion. So I don't know. I, um, I think godless countries will, 
definitely have worse off issue on demographics. Yeah, and, and that'd be countries that would uh, turn into communist countries. You know, like every communist country doesn't want any God but the government. Uh, so, yeah. you, you know, that's that's been their whole thing. Like that's, I you know, believe my belief is, you know, the whole uh, agenda that you could be whatever you want kind of thing is as a part of that creating you into just a nothing. Uh, and, and then you're just uh, stereotyping you into something. So I, I think like, personally i think like the people that would inherit the earth you know 100 to 200 years from now they'd be heavily religious uh people uh because they have a lot of kids and and it's same with the uh, very religious uh, muslims for example so it'd be very like uh we would go back to probably a religious world you know 100 years or something from now maybe yeah i just walked by the other day yesterday i think and uh, there's a new family that moved in not too far from me and there must be I don't know, 20 of them in this teeny little house. And they're all outside, of course, because there's no room inside. But that's, you know, that's compared to us with you're lucky if yeah. you get one person in a, in a house that size, it might be considered too small for two people, or never mind a family, right? So it is a completely different. And that's what someone was saying, I think, smiling son, you know, that um, the immigration is not about the economics, it's about a takeover. And that's, I don't know if that's just fear porn and, uh, and buying into that. There's multiple use cases of countries having ease on immigration, right? There's multiple use cases. So not only economic, but also, you know, to demoralize the the nation, yeah. right? And voters. So, it's voters too, right? Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> especially in the States. I mean, you look at it, they're handed Democrat Party pamphlets, right? As soon as they cross the border. Mm -hmm. And they're, of course, going to vote for that way because they got all of these these benefits. So yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, plus it waters down the culture. It waters down the, the mores of how people uh, function, the, 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 you know, definition of right from wrong. It should be go without saying, but every culture has their version of it. And it's pretty different, you know, just uh, watching how people navigate in, in public, you can see the difference. They just don't know exactly how we get along here in Canada. Yeah. And, um, I, I don't yeah, know. There, there's a, it depends on where mm -hmm. you are. Like, it, it's interesting. Like, at least Canada is quite nice, actually. I, I really enjoy Canada versus Norway. Like, Norway is uh, one of the, this is interesting tidbit of information, but Norway is the, according to a poll that I saw, Norway and China are the worst places to make friends in the world. And, and I can agree from the Norwegian aspect because. I I was way weirded out when people started talking to me on the street here. <laughs> and and we are very like tight it only like the near family usually are our close friends and so on. So um the, yeah if if you have that you know it's uh, it's going to be a lot harder and um but that comes with you know government overreach and the government has become too big and uh, and controlling too much. You know people really tighten up and and uh, don't want to talk to anyone. Because uh, they're afraid of like informants almost like in Norway, we have like uh, a uh, I was just on a podcast, my first podcast in Norwegian ever. Uh, and it was called the Ante Yanta podcast, which is uh, the Yanta Lom in Norway is like, uh, you should never be better than anybody else. And you should uh, just step down, you know, and, and be with society like don't don't think you're better than anybody. Uh, and uh, that you can do any better than anybody else we should all be equal kind of thing. So uh, Norway still, like has that kind of communist era, and, and of course we we do have uh, the communist party is in government in Norway, and not in and not in control of it, 
but they have four uh, percent of the vote of the population, which is interesting. So, um, and um, but yeah, again, you know, it's it's a country that you know used to be quite right leaning, and and if you go and look at the Norwegian population that lives in Minnesota and in North Dakota, it's quite different than the regions down there than the Norwegians in Norway. Uh, it's it's very interesting because they're more like industrious and 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 more like uh, you know uh, individualistic than the regions that are in Norway are very collectivist you know in, in their yeah. mindset. Same with Asia, they're very collective. Yeah. Um, always has been in the way, always will be. And so that's it's actually interesting if you look back uh, during the Cold War, America um, <laughs> they had. Uh, OSO undercover agents working in the art world in the States to bring in these new wave forms of art, like abstract paintings, uh, Dadism, stuff like that, really out there stuff to basically say to the world, hey, we're all about individualism, whereas Russia, they're only about traditional realistic art, which... I actually like better personally, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyways, <laughs> that's just a use example. But um, yeah, someone in the chat says the new immigrants have zero skills. That's absolutely correct, um, and that's a big problem. And it's if we fix the immigration issue, and we started having more kids ourselves, people inside of the nation, productivity would go up through the roof, right? And G- GDP would actually go up. Well, that's the only way to save the debt best system is by actually having uh, you know growth again uh, and more people getting indebted like without without that like the it's just going to start falling apart in the in the sectors that are too leveraged that have too much debt and um, and that's going to be the problem yeah no it's um uh it's an interesting thing because i i actually asked this to maxim Bernier when he was here like the question oh because they want to get rid of immigration completely right so I was like, yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not against that, you know, but uh, what I said is like, what, what are you going to do? Because you're saying that you're going to cut spending and everything and, and the government is not going to, you know, go into any more debt. But what are you going to do with the monetary system? I said, when, when you get that deflationary pressure uh, and what, <laughs> what you can do, the only way to get out of that for like, it's just quantitative easing all the time. Like it's, um, I, I wrote an article in 20, uh, I think it was 2018, called the Federal Reserve will own everything than nothing. Uh, and uh, it, it, it was based upon, you know, looking at Japan and how they basically, the old stocks and, and bonds and everything. You got to remember during COVID now, um, there was a lot of central banks that bought stocks directly, like the Norwegian central banks bought 4% of Oslo Burs, for example, uh, to bail uh, the stock market out. Uh, and so a lot of those, like, they just got to buy more and more. The, the more, you know, when, when you have a selling pressure that comes in and there's no buyers uh, or nowhere, uh, not enough buyers, what's going to happen is the, the Federal Reserve is going to come in. And so they, they will keep, try to keep that going. But uh, it's, um, it's to a point where you overstimulate, like the government needs, like it's coming, we're hearing it more and more of getting paychecks. You know, where did we hear that five or 10 years ago, right? Uh, like little checks from the government all the time. So that didn't exist. So it's just a s- symptom of the problem itself, in my view. So could I jump in? And uh, I don't know if we're done the macro or not. <laughs> if uh, Or maybe we've just kind of been no, all over the place. We've been past that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah we've been all over the place. 
And I think, you know, one of the, the one of the big differences, and forgive me if you're already saying this, but maybe you can spell it out for us, is around the death of the dollar. So I think that was one of the first things I learned from you, John, is that historically all the dollars die. And and then the U.S. and yeah, there's been there been so many dollars. The been Canadian like, dollar uh, would also be yeah. would also be heading that direction. I know, Brendan, you don't you don't believe that, right? I don't see that in the short term or even medium term coming to fruition at all. I think okay. the dollar is going to do quite well compared to other currencies. It, it will do. Yes, I, I agree with you there. It would do really good. Actually, it would do best of all of them. Uh, but then one point, it's got to come home to roost to the dollar. And you're seeing the symptom and a lot of currencies are faltering right now. Uh, so like it will happen in the periphery currencies first, because now we have a dollar uh, shortage and a dollar debt. If you have dollar debt and you have a dollar shortage, there you can't pay for that debt. And so these currencies are collapsing because they just have to print atrocious amounts of currency in order to then afford you know, to uh, to pay off their debts. And and you saw that in Venezuela as well and, uh, and Argentina and other currencies that had U.S. dollar-denominated debt. Now, China doesn't have that, by the way. Uh, they don't have very much U.S. dollar-denominated debt. They have yuan-denominated uh, uh, debt. So they're going to keep on just inflating and inflating. But it gets to the point where the Turkish lira is at right now, where people are buying used cars, they're buying gold, uh, in order to keep their the purchase power, but they're also buying uh, U.S. dollars and euros right now because that's the other that's the stronger currencies to go to, right? Uh, versus, but all currencies have lost value. Like prices have gone up on everything. Uh, so when you have an increase in currency supply, everything becomes like your dollars buy you less basically. And so even though the dollar is strong, it's also weaker. Yeah. So then. Um, so I might have misunderstood that. So Brendan, you do agree that the the dollar is headed for a death, but not in the shorter medium term. It would be a long, drawn out process for it to actually die, in a realistic sense. I mean that we're talking decades of, you know, deflationary uh, environment. So, yeah, I, I you know, if. Uh, it, that would ha a lot would have to happen in order for that to be rolled out the the death of the dollar so and we're just simply not seeing those things right now mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay and uh and i think we already talked about hyperinflation as a as a possibility that's something that john i've heard you say a lot that we were heading towards that <clears throat> it uh, um, you know, maybe it was my perception, but it always felt like any any second now we could, you know, any minute or you could wake up the next day and then um, those events you were talking about, how these happen so fast could happen. Yeah, they could unfold, right? Like it's it's still risks there. Like we got to remember we have a bank run problem in the United States. Uh, there's a whole bunch of run on the banks. Like remember uh, SVB, uh, Silvergate, uh, First Capital like all these banks, they uh, they basically capitals flood. Now it wasn't a cash run; it was actually a digital run. So everybody's running to the bigger banks. So now we get the small banks are collapsing, but then the bigger fish eats the small uh, fish, and now we got even less competition. And then like uh, it's got to be worse with that big like. Yeah, it's fine having J.P. Morgan and Jamie Dimon, you know, sitting on top, but he he basically. Well, you got to remember the, the the primary dealers own the Federal Reserve in the first place. It's not the not like that here in Canada, uh, but um, it's uh, it's um, 
you know, they they will do whatever it takes to bail themselves out. Like they're in control of the regulators and everything. So uh, of course they are, they are the too big to fail. So you got to remember they're on the GSIB list. You know, the FSB put out a GSIB list every year and, and there's actually uh, uh, Chinese banks on that GSIB list, by the way. So they will get bailed out like China construction bank, uh, ICBA. Oh, I forgot what the other one is. Uh, but there's two or three Chinese banks on that same list that needs to get bailed out by the IMF or whoever means uh, they need to bail them out when they collapse. So uh, again, in 2019, it, it started. But again, you can you know, keep on dragging this out. But people will get poorer and poorer and poorer. And at one point, you know, uh, uh, just uh, debt is not creating wealth. It's creating some wealth, but less and less. What the rich do, as you said, you alluded to that at the start. You know, as a business, you buy assets with debt, you know, good actually assets. You know, that's what the top people do. And that's why we see in a huge, you know, disparities because they know what to do. I actually talked to a friend of mine that owns a whole bunch of vault, like he runs a company that runs vaults for rich people. And yeah, they're they're just going into debt to buy a piece of furniture because they know that will go up in value. Like they just use that debt. But it's it's totally insane. But they're doing it because they know that when they are the first one to get the debt, you know, they have the benefit of the rise in the price because of the lowering in uh, the, the more supply of the currency, the lower the, the price, you know, the more monetary units. So they're feeling wealthier, but not really like uh, when you think about even the housing prices going up, it's, it's not the housing prices really going up. It's just that our currency system is printing uh, and creating more reserves and more currency into the system. It's not that anything goes up really. Not a lot. Like in commodity markets, it's, you know, supply and demand and, and products. Uh, but when it comes to monetary things like that, it's not. Well, so there's no supply and demand in housing? There is. Yeah, it's local demand. Uh, like it depends on, you know, if you have schools that people go to, uh, that's local demand. And then you have net migration. Uh, is it uh, a net migration in or out of, of, uh, of course, the uh, the location? That's a supply and demand thing um uh, and that's what we're seeing but it also could be just financialized currency like a lot of here in manitoba a lot of uh the developers now are selling straight to foreign investors that don't even have any say so it's kind of fake uh supply as well like through that like through the these programs so people just park there like when i worked in manitoba uh, in the construction industry here uh, in the housing market like there was a lot of chinese that bought you know th there was Basically, you go to uh, like 10 different fa Chinese families. They're not there, but it's one guy that goes around and like you meet him everywhere. So basically, it's it's uh, also fake supply created by foreign investors coming in as well. Trying to get their currency out of their, their country because of capital <laughs> controls. So that is not like, tell me if that's like actually like good natural supply or not. But I don't believe in that's, well, that's very good. Still supply and demand, though. Yeah, I know, but like, why is that good? Like, uh, I like to look at it as good or bad. Like, it's like building gold cities in China. Is that good demand or bad demand? <laughs> right? Uh -huh. That's obviously, yeah. 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 yeah, I get what you're saying about the ghost towns and all that in China. But yeah, I mean, in the, in the United States real estate market in particular, I mean, that's, uh, you want to talk about, you know, the hedge fund managers buying gold. Well, the ones that I know, they're more heavy in the real estate than than gold. Um, well they're not they're not they're holding it as a portion of their investment. It's not like they're buying it to trade it. Like it's a wealth insurance. 
like gold gold and silver to me is not actually an investment like i don't trade it like i just buy it as a wealth insurance i have my stocks that i buy for investments but i don't trade i don't trade my um, physical metal yeah that was next on the list to talk about metals and and cryptos and how uh they are used and that's how i've come to understand it that it is a it is a way to store wealth but um i know brandon you have uh, a lot to say about you got a whole video talking about that do you want to give us your your rundown synopsis on is that are you are you on the same page with john there that it's a matter of storing wealth not building wealth which you've i don't even think it does that good of a job of storing wealth um let's see silver example you know why if it's a good store on wealth, why is silver the same price as it was in 1977 right now? Gold is a little different. Um, personally, if I were to pick, I would definitely pick gold over silver as a insurance. I don't even believe it's insurance, though, because look what happened in 2020 when everything was going down. All asset classes. Uh, yeah, because they had to sell the good assets like gold and silver and crypto in order to cover the losses in their bad assets, their stocks. Right, but when you have margin calls, well, when you have a deflationary event like that, mm -hmm. there there is no good asset to hold, and if you're if you don't have a long short portfolio, it's gonna hit your portfolio's performance, right? So, you know, I I see gold and silver not as insurance because it's highly correlated, and for reasons like John said, people got to cover the losses stuff like that. So that's gonna reflect in the gold and silver prices just like any other asset is going to go down. Also silver and gold goes down in that event and quite a significant number. It went down. So, and again, if you go back in the chart, 1980s to 2006, you had a flat return on your gold, even though in the years between we had inflation, right? So it's not even that good of an inflation hedge. From 1980s to 2006? Yeah, it was 1980s to 2005. Gold just stayed flat. Yeah, like, yeah, I, I got to look that up now. <laughs> Brenton, you have a chart. I think you just showed it to us. Yeah, I could share sure. it real quick. If you want to pop it up, sure. Let's see. Got too many things on my computer. Let's see. It was in your document. Do you want me to go grab that? Yeah, I'm actually in that right now. That's what you're in. Okay, good. Yeah. So let me share. Uh, yeah, Brendan shared his notes from the last interview on the economics. So um, I'm going to post those in. I'll probably post them here as well as the first interview. Okay, cool. Yeah, so remember, like, it depends on when you bought in the 80s. Uh, if you bought at the peaks, of course, like in uh, uh, in February 83 here, like you're looking at, uh, let's see, you know, 416. And then 2006, like right at January 2006, it was 551. Uh, but then if you bought at the bottom in uh, January 85, it was 191. And then it's up to 5 um uh, 461 so it depends like if you you can be selective with charts of course so when you when you buy them but uh then again like you buy low and you, you sell high in those but if you just accumulated let's during that 10 year time span you'd still be uh profitable like it the thing is like 
again, you know, I'm, I'm not looking at gold as an investment. Like gold is to me, like what I have, you know, when currencies go, goes bad uh, and you have, uh, you know, our assets in our digital world gets frozen, uh, it's good to have something, you know, um, in order to uh, preserve your wealth. And, and especially when you get uh, asset freezes, like what happened in a lot of these banks in the United States there, uh, people would like to, like now they're burning the banks in Lebanon because they can't get their money out of the banks. Um, so again, it's a, that is what it is to me. And, and I talked and I, I, I um, interviewed and talked to a lot of people from uh, places like Zimbabwe. I have a good friend of mine that lived through the hyperinflation in, in, um, in Yugoslavia. You know, he said, like, if it wasn't for his family having a farm, you know, they would start to death. Uh, because there was, uh, for, first of all, supply, you know, disappears because there's a war. And then second of all, he said that the wealthiest people at the end of it, they had gold uh, and, and silver that they then had. And then they sold and bought a whole bunch of assets that was dirt cheap. So it's like a cycle. You know, when, when you get to that cycle peak where housing suddenly becomes dirt cheap, if you've been saving up gold, you just flip into the, to the extreme cycles. You know, the extreme high of gold over valuation, and then you buy at the low valuation asset, which uh, a lot of times could be houses. Like, uh, it happens all the time throughout history. So, um, like, gold gold is always, like, hedging itself. Like, there's so many stories from these countries, and, and there there's lots of them. There's, you know, in Western Europe, there's stories like that. Like, in Norway, in uh, in Sweden, um, in um uh, in France and uh, like through, throughout history, just because we live in a modern world, uh, we think that, you know, gold as a, a store of value uh, is not relevant anymore, uh, is uh, quite oxymoronic. Like in, and it could, you know, maybe you're right and maybe uh, you'll uh, you just have, have a good time trading. But again, just having like 5% of the portfolio sitting there, as well, it's like having life insurance. You know, if you die, it's good to have life insurance for your partner. Um, so that's that's well, how I look at it. I don't tell people to be, you know, 100% your portfolio and your trading, right? That's never a good idea. So I, that's definitely not what I advocate. So I was curious because, um, and, you know, maybe this is my own interpretation as I was taking in information, especially through all of that fear that we were going through. And so my impression was like that the the whole prediction, not just you, John, but say in in in, in our whole little culture here, was saying that this was going to be a bigger collapse than the 1930s. So bigger than the Great Depression. And see, like Brandon snickering, and then but when when I was hearing you talk about uh, having gold, John, you're you're talking about it like not in the context of a complete collapse. You're talking about it like okay, when does the cycle come around again and get so yeah, but the cycle is so low that you could you could yeah. afford to right, but that you're but you're not talking about a complete falling apart of the dollar of the system. Usually, usually that have happened. Usually, usually that have happened. Like when you have that collapse, yeah, like the the cycle. The cycle ends in that. That's always how it ends. Right, but just to clarify, because when you talk about a total collapse, a total a total breakdown, death of the dollar, death of the public systems, all of that kind of thing, and then you know that that the impression that it left me with is is it false that that nothing goes to zero, right? Like the dollar doesn't really go to zero, the society doesn't go to zero. 
Because no, society up, society doesn't go to zero, but the, right, the currency only... that we use would become worthless. Like that's how it always ends. And like what happens is like if you have every like as I said, you know, if you were in Argentina and that you have that uh, transition there, like look at Lebanon right now, all their life savings are gone uh, because they had it in Lebanese pounds. Uh, and it's the same with, you know, Venezuela or other countries. We could laugh it off as, you know, a, uh, uh, a banana republic. But problem is that, uh, especially Venezuela, was a very wealthy nation. And so was Argentina in the 60s. And so right. they have those cycles, right? Like they have those right. life cycles. Right. So just to set the record straight, then you're not talking about a complete collapse, correct? No, like, uh, are you talking about like a doomsday, like we all die or something? Well, I mean, the people who like to eat sticks and berries and, and garden and farm and raise animals won't die. But <laughs> so but this this was the picture that was painted unless I completely took. Well, it no, that, that's a part of the like a lot of these currencies when they, they falter. Yeah, a lot of people start to death because they whatever their salaries, their life savings was like, how are they going to afford to, you know, pay for them? Like they're I know, their I get assets. it. Yeah. I get it, John, but I, I want clarity on this because I had the impression about like it going to zero. Crypto was going to go to zero and the dollar is going to go to zero and the every, everything is going to like flatline. And well, so, crypto is going to go to zero. That'd be like opposite. Like it's it's kind of a hedge. Like Bitcoin, for example, is a hedge to the dollar. Okay. So I'll just say from your response yeah. that, that it was a no, that I was misunderstanding that this, you know, complete knock them down. Because that's, you know, that's that's part of the subject here that, um, you know, I'm not I'm not picking on you or making it personal, but it turns into fear porn, right? That people are that are literally scared by every every, you know, reporting of a bank, every reporting of uh, an interest rate change or every, you know, little thing. It becomes this like where it, it drives people out of fear. And oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. So people people are just scared and they're not like. Uh, sitting, you know, uh, and having a picture of things like they're getting worried that, you know, this is going to be the end of things. Um, well, that's like the for, narrative. Yeah. The narrative is is the financial collapse. I mean, you hear it all the time. Yeah. And, and you yeah. and I have common friends that they say it and their whole world is is based on this. Right. Yeah, and, and, it's, and, it, and, and it's not based on what you guys are both mutually agreeing on. I'll just say it's not true. Is that no, fair? it's not. It's not true that it. Like, but it could happen at any time. Like that's that's the problem. Is like what what I'm trying to say is that like any currency be like the U.S. dollar, for example. It's like just recent years. Like in 1933, it fell apart. They had to bail it out. Like it, they had to create a whole new monetary system. It took people's gold, uh, gold savings, and people lost a lot of money. In the 1970s, the same thing happened when they went away from the last remnants of the gold standard. They had to, again, they got too much debt, they couldn't pay it. And so they had to reset the monetary system. And a lot of people lost their currency during that time, too. My, my parents, during the big uh, monetary collapse in, in uh, Norway, for example, they, the, my dad lost his business uh, as a part of it. And uh, they, they almost lost their house uh, on top of that. And that was when interest rates went to 20 when the, the real world was, was kind of there, when he didn't have a central bank manipulating things up and down, uh, the, he panicked, you know, Walker, and he had to run it all the way up to uh, 18%. And, and that, you know, severe damage. you got to remember in, in places like Zimbabwe right now, it's, uh, what was the last? It was 194% uh, interest rate. And people are losing their, uh, if you had debt, you would lose a lot of, 
things when interest rates go to one, unless you had it like locked in. But then when the reset comes, so that loan, you're suddenly looking at like a thousand percent increase in in your payment, right? So um, again, like currencies collapse over time, and I think we we become comfortable because like I've lived my whole life through a cycle of uh, not collapsing. I was born in '84, so I never seen it. Why would I be? Why should I be worried? Right. And so um, people become complacent with, you know, and believing that and, and, you know, you could trust the system and that's, that's the whole thing. You could trust the system until a certain point and then it falls apart. Now, uh, what, what I, I guess like I've been viewed as, you know, uh, trying to, you know, scare people and, and everything, but it, it's just like a matter of fact, like it will happen and I'm preparing for it by putting a portion of my savings into assets like that. And, and then that's what I do personally. I, I'm not a financial advisor or anything, so I can't give advice, but it's my opinion. And that's what it's always been. And um, yeah, I'm not trying to like uh, put fair porn and scare people out there. You just need to know that it would happen and uh, it's good to yeah. be prepared for it. I think John is different than most uh, people that, kind of say the same things he does. I think a, a lot of people in a similar position as John, they have everything in gold and silver. Or the order sell gold and silver. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Usually both. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think um, I think John isn't coming from a place of conflict of interest when it comes to trying to push the gold narrative and saying, you know, this is the only thing that you should own. Right. No, no. Um, I, but I John, really, I really trust it as that wealth insurance portion. If, That's the only, yeah. My, if I heard you right, you said you, mm-hmm. you do hold some stock. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I'm uh, in the commodity sector and I, like I buy dividend paying stocks. I have a very different strategy. So okay. like I just hold them for huge dividend payments, which is really good. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, like when they're down a bit, like there's, I'm still making money on them. So it's, um, like for me, it's like I, I just stay in that with uh, that. So in my portfolio, like I hold uh, commodity stocks usually that are high pay dividend paying stocks. I don't buy them for ups and downs. So I just buy them for like the dividend because I'm I'm a guy like I'm you got to remember we are we might be very different because I'm just a very conservative investor and I'm just like long term, like long scale. So that's oh. all like e- even if I lose out on the big ups and downs, um, it's uh, it's fine with me. Well, I will say, uh, I do tell most people, be a long-term investor. Um, so I don't recommend most people do what I do, right? And most people couldn't do it. Um, so I yeah, couldn't I, do it. <laughs> takes a strong nervous system. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, if you're day trading, yeah. I don't do that, though. Oh, that's not what you're talking about. Okay. Got oh, it. heck no. Okay. Okay. So what are you alluding to then? If it's not the long term, what what other options are there? Just based on my skill set and knowledge, I just run a long short equities portfolio, and I'm doing constant quantitative qualitative research on companies, and I can take long and short positions on companies I see are doing well, and companies I see are going to do bad. I can take positions in currencies I think are going to do good, currencies are going to do bad, stuff like that. So, you know, it's always changing but i'm not day trading in and out of things like uh, a lot of people think of when they think of trading right that's unfortunately we, society's been brainwashed into day trading when 
90% day traders lose 90% of their money within 90 days. Don't ever do day trading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's like the slot machine, right? You just go put your money in and it's going to keep eating it until you stop putting your money in. It can be very addicting for people. And unfortunately, when you try to do your research online, that's all that's going to pull up is day trading videos. And uh, <laughs> people think that you can trade as income, which I never advocate for. You know, right. Right. I, I tell people, start a cash flow or multiple cash flows and have that feed into your investments. Right, right. Yeah. And one of the... Yeah. And one of the principles I learned from John too, just was about like one of the reasons the economies fail is because there's no value in it, that it's, they're just trying to use money to make money. And so it sounds like you two would both agree on that. Well, I always say as society, we need to bring back entrepreneurs instead of relying on Walmart and, you know, these grocers as an example, right? That mm-hmm. likes to talk about, uh, we need to go back to how it was where 80% of us, you know, one guy was the, you know, the, the coffee guy, one guy who's the, the restaurant, you know, everyone needs to have their place in the economy rather than us depending on these uh, corporations. Right. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. And then um, John, so I'm supposed to ask you about the CAFR and you just have to totally forgive my ignorance. I'm literally just repeating that. Someone asked me to ask C-A-F-R. you. C-A-F-R. C-A-F-R. Maybe you want to help me here. I am not sure. Like, do you know about this, Brandon? CFR. I do. The, the CAFR. CAFR. Thank you. Yeah, it's an acronym. It's um, Annual Comprehensive Financial Report. Um, okay. So and- CAFR or what? Like uh, just of in governments. general? Yeah. All of governments. <laughs> yeah. And uh, look, uh, a lot of people say the Fed, you know, Ron Paul, he's always saying edit, edit the Fed or audit the Fed, right? But they actually are audited. Well, yeah, in, in the way that, like, the, for example, they, they currently hold, I think, like, um, their gold in their holdings are still accounted for at 11, what was it? It was, uh, it was pre-1933 or something price. I think it's like $35 um, on their balance sheet. So if that's audited, like, shouldn't it be a fair market value, for example, for that gold holdings, right? Well, the statutory price of gold in the States is around that $35. Price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so it's, uh... it's completely different from the market price. That's another reason I stay away from metals now, because after I realized what the statutory price was, it's vastly different than the, uh, you know, people say that, you know, entities like the Fed, for example, or JP Morgan, they short gold and silver to manipulate the price down when actually it's, they don't manipulate it. If anything, it's manipulated up from the statutory price in the in the comex market stuff like that so you know it's uh yeah so in the chest is 42 yeah that's the statute yeah 42 yeah, there you go yep so yeah but uh but that's not the market price if you try to extract it from the ground it's more like six to eight hundred dollars you know that you're looking at uh for the price of gold the cost to get it out of the ground so it's uh right yeah they're definitely wrong on that one <laughs> anyways mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, very good. And uh, and then do you guys want to talk about G. Edward Griffin? Because, John, I know you're a big fan of his and you've even got pictures of yourself with him at your website. And um, and then I know, Brandon, you have some things maybe to say about that. Do you guys want to? Yeah, no, I, I actually work with uh, G. Edward Griffin and Freedom Force International. I sit on the board with him and he actually wrote the foreword to one of my books, uh, by the way. So, yeah, he's a good friend of mine. 
Uh, and, and of course the, the federal reserve, the book on it itself, like it's, a uh, um, it just points out the obvious things like the, um, uh, the federal reserve ha has shareholders, you know, that pay, that they pay dividends to very different from, you know, the Canadian central bank that are owned by the taxpayers of Canada. Uh, so it's quite, you know, different, uh, setup of course, to the, to the federal reserve, which is a probably owned enterprise, um, so it's, uh, you know, they're, they're separated, you know, as an entity, they're not federal, like federal, they're, you know, they're owned by, you know, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and the other, uh, the other primary dealers, of course, that own shares in the, in the different districts, you know, there's 12 districts of the Federal Reserve, and then they own shares in the Minneapolis or in the New York or in the San Francisco Fed, for example. So you're saying the Fed is a private corporation, right? Well, they're definitely not, though. They're an independent agency of government, just like the Postal Service and Social Security Administration. No, how can they be that when they have shareholders like J.P. Morgan? So is is they don't the have whole shareholders. Uh, is the yes they do? Go and look at uh, the Federal Reserve Act. Here, you can share your screen if you want, John. I just second her. Take your time. Didn't Pierre Trudeau sell out Canada to the international bankers in 1974? <laughs> and uh, Joy also said Federal Reserve is quasi governmental. Do you agree with that, Brendan? Absolutely not. It's an independent government branch. Right. Like, what do we call that in Canada here? Like a crown corporation? Well, think of it like this. Congress had to pass a bill for the creation of the Federal Reserve, right? What does that tell you? How is that a private corporation? Right. It was created by Congress. Can you make it real big for us, John? Oh, uh, yeah. Let's try to... Great. Thank you. So right here, it says, like under the Federal Reserve Act, Section 7, um, it says, in case of a stockholder with total consolidated asset or more than $10,000, the smaller of the rate equal to the uh, to the high yield of a 10-year Treasury note auction at the last auction held prior to the payment of such dividend and 6%, and in case of a stockholder with consolidated assets over 10 uh 10 billion dollars uh, or less six percent so dividend cumulative so basically they're talking about the shareholder um of the bank itself which is which is stated as the um uh the local banks let's see if we can find it here well i will say the government as a whole is a corporation so when we're talking about you know for example like a local municipality Yes, that is a corporation, but it's not like some private individual is just managing it. The government just organizes themselves with corporations. Just a structure. Yeah. And then, so what do you think of the information that John is sharing here in the act? Well, it's not saying anywhere that XYZ is the shareholder. Oh, let's see here. 
I'm not seeing JP Morgan or. Well, you wouldn't have JP if you had JP Morgan. There would be pretty obvious. <laughs> well, then how? Where, I guess where did you see that JP Morgan was a shareholder? It's the primary dealers, so it's like whoever is, as you could see here. So this is just word, right? So like they can't say it, but uh, in case of a stockholder with a total consolidated asset of more than ten uh, billion, who is that? And then has bigger than ten billion in assets, who is that? Like, is it the government? Yeah, Both absolutely. Of them? So there's lots of government entities that have... There is. Uh, there's lots of government entities. No, no. I'm saying there's lots of government entities that have share, shares in the United States uh, Federal Reserve then. According I don't know. We don't, have, we don't have a list of the actual shareholders. Yeah. But but again, like, uh, what is that? Like, so you're talking about that the, just the government is... Like, there's lots of government agencies that are part of this because they're describing more than one shareholder, right? Right. Well, look, we got multiple government agencies, right? So, so they you know, all hold shares in the Federal Reserve system. I I don't know. I we don't know who the uh, you know the shareholders are describing is. I'm just saying it's definitely not J.P. Morgan. Here, dividend amount after necessary expenses of a Federal Reserve bank have been paid and provided for by the stockholders of the bank shall the ent uh, entitled to receive an annual dividend on paid in capital stock of. So like, I, yeah, I, I get that you, you think that like, just because it doesn't say JP Morgan, um, it, it's not them, uh, but it, it's quite clear that there's well, entities, several entities, either above or below $10 billion uh, that does hold, uh, you know, shares. Well, let me ask you this then. If you know that's a corporation, it's a private corporation, where is it registered? A private is, corporation. Is it in Delaware? Like the Federal Reserve? Yeah, couldn't you, if it was an actual, if it's what you're describing, couldn't we pull up the public record of the corporation wherever it's registered? Um, I don't know. That's, that's how corporations work, right? You can look up the charter and uh, the articles of incorporation. So how come nobody can find that for the Federal Reserve? If it's what they say it is. Right. The common understanding, I, I believe, is that the Federal Reserve is a private company. Shareholders are secret. And I think, Brandon, you said explicitly that that's not the case, right? Companies companies are registered. It doesn't matter. A company, corporation, whatever. Yeah, so you say the Federal Reserve is not private. It's as public as it comes, correct? It's not private. Right. And then same lady disagrees with you, just so you know. Oh, I know. I've seen her now. <laughs> I don't yeah, really so there, there's no proof of either or, right? Because you can't prove that the U.S. Here, let me stop sharing it, though. Uh, there. there you go. Yeah. Yeah, so there's no proof of either or. Like, uh, I would like proof that it's owned by the government as well. Well, it's very clear. I mean, it, it's been stated over and over in uh, Congress documents. It is an independent branch of government, just like the U.S. Post Office. Where? Show, show us the... I want to see it. Hold on. All right, we're getting the nitty-gritty here. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. My point is, though, no one can prove 
that is privately held by the banking families, like a lot of the conspiracy, the you know these these people making these points say. I'm not saying that's what you're saying. Well, it's pretty obvious that it was created by the banks. Um, what you got to remember is, for example, there's something called the Exchange Stabilization Fund in the United States. Uh, what it's used as as a stabilization mechanism to try to manipulate the U.S. dollar. And they, back in the day, they actually uh, it was created in 1933 during the Gold Act, where they confiscated all the gold. Well, not all the gold, but they confiscated a bunch of gold um, from the population. And they, with two billion dollars, it was a fund called the Exchange Stabilization Fund that was created. And that fund um, uh, actually, you know, is used by multiple branches around the world uh, to go in in markets. They have a market tra trading desk and so on. Um, that they go in and, and then trade. Now, of course, the, the primary dealers, what you got to remember is like there's there's certain banks that are just members of the Fed. Everybody else are not members. And so the primary dealers, uh, they are the ones that are going to get bailed out. And if you look at the records of 2019 during the subprime, no, during the, uh, the blow up in the repo market, um, the banks that got bailed out was JP Morgan, Deutsche Bank and every other primary dealer. Uh, and so uh, why are they getting bailed out? And like, if it's a government entity, why are they only bailing out the primary dealers and not the other banks? Well, it's because, I mean, if they didn't bail out, let's say JP Morgan, for example. Why can't we just... let it fail? Why would they? But I mean, why that, that is the backbone of the banking sector in the U.S. Yeah, why but what, it, clearly it can't run properly if they have to bail it out. That only happened once. That only happened in 08, though. And 2019. Here, let me uh, let me show you. I got the stats here. Ian has a good question. While we're waiting for that, um, where does all the interest dollars go when the Fed prints money for the government and owes tons of interest? Who gets that cash? Like who creates it? No, when when. Where do all the interest dollars go when the Fed prints money for the government and owes tons of interest? That'd be the treasury holders, mm -hmm. whoever that is. And that would be the Federal Reserve or anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. <clears throat> so here, let's see here. Uh, is this the first one? And you guys agree with this while we're waiting? The bottom line is that banks firstly and primarily profit from money creation in the USA. That should not be the case. I don't know if it should not be the case. But it uh, is. Look, I mean, in an ideal world, yes. But you got to realize, if all of a sudden the banks stopped making money from money creation, you know how disruptive that would be? Um, so look, I mean, if we want this ideal society, it would be, I mean, good luck rolling that out, competing with what we have now. Uh, they're not going to let you do it. Right. So that's yeah. true that the, the banks first and, and uh, no. primarily profit from money creation. Well, yeah, that's how money is created. But my point is. I Why mean, should it be created that way? Why can't we have a fixed supply and then whoever owns it has to have backing? to lend well look to ideal society sure but again we're talking about a utopia right and that's not where we're in so we have to work with what we got right now 
I'm not saying I believe in usury. I don't believe in usury. But I can't be in denial of where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the current system, 100%. Like commercial bank creates the most amount of uh, M2 in the world. Like they're, they create uh, 100% more than... Uh, than any no way more than that you know than the federal reserve and then of course all the european banks the chinese banks they all create their own us dollars and on their own ledgers so they create fake us dollars called euro dollars so it's a whole different system you know that's outside of even the us dollar in existence and so like all of these are are creating the dollars themselves but but here's the uh, here's my rundown of who got bailed out like this is just a few of the repo days uh, I believe, uh, is this the first one? Let's see, now this is October. Let me see if I got the other one there. Mm. Oh, here we go. This is when it blew up here. So September 17th, uh, this is uh, when it happened here. So. As you can see here, uh, these are who got bailed out, like during the repo uh, bailout, and it was JP Morgan got uh, a lot of it, uh, and then UBS uh, got five point. So this is uh, let's see, billion. So this is five point five billion. JP Morgan got seven point six. Goldman got five thousand. Uh, no, five billion. BNP Paribas got five three point seven to Cantor Fitzgerald. Uh, Citigroup got three point five. Nomura got 3.5, Societe General got 3, um, BOA got 3, 2.5 to Bank of Nova Scotia, uh, 2.4 to Barclays, uh, Deutsche Bank got 1.5, Morgan Stanley got 1.3, uh, Jefferies 1.3, TD Securities 12, 12, uh, 1.2, Mitsu Securities 1,000, RBC Capitals uh, 1,000, and then BMO uh, 500 million. Uh, Amherst Pierpoint, uh, which is a remnant of uh, Pierpoint Morgan. Uh, and then Diva Capital uh, got paid 200 and then NatWest. And so when we go and look at the banks, um, uh, let's see here quickly if we can find. Yeah, here's the banks. Uh, again, so this is uh, this was 2019. So we got to look at the 2019 list. So J.P. Morgan is on that list. Bank of America, Barclays, BNP, Paribas, Deutsche Bank, Goldman Sachs. Um, uh, I don't think Wells Fargo was bailed out initially. Um, and then you have uh, Mellon. Um, you got Credit Suisse. Uh, you got Mitso, uh, Morgan Stanley, RBC, uh, Banco Santander. TD Bank, um, UBS. Um, so you can see like a lot of them uh, that are on the, this here. Like this is the priority. So if if any of these fails, like this, this is the rules. This is the top dog, JP Morgan. And then these are the lesser important banks like Bank of America, Citigroup, and HSBC. And then under that, uh, these are global banks that will get bailed out. So this is Bank of China, Barclays, uh, BNP Paribas, Deutsche Bank, Goldman Sachs, I. Uh, ICBC, which is a Chinese bank, and then uh, this is Mitsubishi Financial Group, uh, agricultural. So this is another tear here, as you can see. Like there, there's a lot of known European and international banking names there, but these are the ones that get created by. There's like 20 central bankers that create this list at the FSB every year, and they say like these banks has to be bailed out no matter what, and then the rest of them screw them. 
uh, basically. So if you're not on this list, you're, you're in uh, you're in some trouble. Right. And maybe just to conclude on that point, it sounds like there is some conjecture on both sides that there's there's um, something that can't be proved either way. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly who those shareholders are. Right. Well, again, I mean, I personally do not believe the Federal Reserve is a corporation. Um, well, second of all, go back to the, the bank bailouts that you're mm-hmm. explaining. If you see that they're working in line with the Fed, why would they ever, why would the Fed ever let JP Morgan fail? Yeah, exactly. And that's what's happening. They're bailing them out. So, I don't know. To me, that shows stability. <laughs> you know, how, how is that stability that something fails and you have to create more currency? Fail. Yes, I it mean, did. Like they had to, they had to have uh, repo overnight lending into the repurchase uh, market in order to actually not be able to pay their bonds to their bondholders. Like it's that's the repo market is a purchase and selling agreement overnight, and when you have less of reserves another bank you have to try to get reserves but you couldn't get it so actually the federal reserve had to do uh overnight lending and that turned into quantitative easing like you saw it overnight they suddenly uh, it was like first it was repo then it turned into term repo then it turned into outright but purchases I, i've been aware of all of this you know i remember seeing a video george gammon may talking about all of this right but at the end of the day what effect did it have on the economy you know and every, on the economy every, and everyday people's lives. I mean, yeah. people are poor. I, I think people fixate on these, you know, facets of data and they just say, look, this is proof that the system's going to fail. Right. But, or they would look in their pocketbook and say, I have less money now. I can't purchase this and that. I've had a JP Morgan account since 2016. And I mean, <laughs> Am I worried about going anywhere after seeing what you just shown? That actually gives me more confidence. Well, of course, yeah, safe. of course, you would be built like if you're in JP Morgan, it's a top dog. Why would why would you be afraid of being anywhere else? If you're in other banks, the market actually works in those banks, so they have to go bankrupt, and then JP Morgan will buy them for uh, for nothing on the dollar, like they did with First Capital, right? So. Yeah, JP Morgan. And now, of course, uh, one of the big guys is BlackRock because they own $10 trillion in assets. So they're, they're a big dog, but they're, uh, you know, part of the, um, uh, the, 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 um, uh, the asset managers. So they, they do a lot of reverse repo uh, and, and so on. And of course, they get to sit there as the guys that contributed to the uh, programs like PMCCF and SMCCF, like where they basically had to buy corporate bond ETFs and and uh, bond issues because they, they were going bankrupt. So they had to stabilize them and, and then uh, purchase them through those programs. That was uh, a combination between BlackRock and the Federal Reserve that facilitated that. And, and the BlackRock got paid a lot of money uh, per their agreement with, you know, uh, with the Federal Reserve. Uh, to make those transactions happen. That's that's fascism, right? So, like, uh, again, you know, yeah, yes, we live in the system, right? But uh, we can disagree with the system that it's totally right and, and very corrupt, of course. That's what I think, anyways. Well, I'm not saying it's all great, you know. Like, again, I don't believe in usury. But, you know, to say that we can break off and, uh, you know, pick up the pieces after it fails... 
I just don't see that day ever coming in our lifetime. All right. Well, is there um, some agree to disagree? Maybe. Uh, oh yeah, no, it's it's there. Yeah, it's agree to disagree. I think of both of us. So mm -hmm, for sure, fine. for sure. Yeah, and that's fine. That we're we're not looking always for consensus, and uh, every community has more than one perspective going on. We're not looking for that uh, you know homogeneity sameness of of everyone and um i i did hear a lot of things that you guys said that were more the same than they were different a lot of agreement so that's really great and um even the basic philosophy of of um what we talked about before in narco capitalism and the ability to move yeah. freely in the market and uh, well, when it, value. Yeah. i actually yeah, have on. big disagreements with arco capitalism you cannot have anarchy and capitalism at the same time with the capitalism portion of that being effective you have to have some rule of law in order yeah but listen you you've gotten uh like anarchy means no rulers it doesn't mean no laws it's a rebranding right yeah. that's, anarchy did mean lawlessness like that's the exact that's the exact definition of it but it got it got rejigged and it became a kind of popular because of how crushed we are by our rulers that, that, you know, people did this, this other turnaround, but I, but I think, you know, it's not true anarchy. Say when I, I go to Anarchapogo with a bunch of anarchists, well, it's actually pretty orderly. You got a schedule and people just, you know, show up at the right time and they sit in the chairs and it's not anarchy, but we've re we've made that mean something different now, more uh, along the lines of freedom and self-governance. This is a utopia though. I mean, a rule without someone trying to be the ruler. I mean, that's just going against human nature itself. There's always going to be those individuals. You know, just remember in elementary school, right? You always had that one kid trying to be the class president. It's always going to be the case. You cannot eliminate that. And, so, and that's fine for the people that want that. See, like, I don't want to impose my idea on anyone, right? Like, I want like a society where I could live in that has anarcho-capitalism, but I'm a voluntarist as well. So voluntarism basically means that uh, you agree to be societies living, uh, you know, in proximity to each other or whatever it is, but you just need to live by under one principle and it's a non-aggression principle that you don't uh, attack each other or violate your private property rights or like the property or line that, you know, a society has. Um, now, of course, yeah, that might be utopian, but that's what I want, and that's what I would love to live in. <laughs> I mean, it sounds great, but uh, I mean, from what we've seen over the past thousand years, the same people have been running the show. So <laughs> to say that they're going to go away, I just I don't see that as realistic at all. No, but you can live uh, in places where you're way less reliant on them, of course. Uh, so you don't have to be a part of their system as much. That's like where I uh, kind of, you know, use my values and I try to, you know, avoid like I don't want any money from the government, you know, uh, never taken any money from the government my whole life. Uh, because that's an ethical right, and and so I I believe like I I don't want any uh, people ruling over me, and uh, like I act like that when I talk to people. I just tell you know government officials like and everybody like I I remember when I had a political party that was quite uh, humorizing. You know how terrible and you know corrupt that system was, uh, but again like uh, I you know ran on 
like I said that we're going to slash taxes in half, what I really would uh, love to do is just cut them down to zero. Like it doesn't mean that we're going to have a civilized society just because government doesn't exist. Uh, it means that we'll have a society where like, look at, you know, prior to 1913 in the United States, they got roads built and, and they had society at that time. Um, like, we, yeah, we, we have like this more uh, moral superiority now where we think that we're so more modern and, that we were way better than they were back at that day. But that's every generation do that, of course, over time. So, uh, but yeah, anyways, it's my utopian uh, uh, love and dream, you know, that our anarcho-capitalist system. But I, I never want to push it on anybody else. I, I want people to have their own choices. And I think that's probably the most important part is that we all um, have different values and choices. So maybe we should, you know, uh, at least like live around per proximity with each other. Or in this day and age, you could just meet somebody online that had those values and, and we do interact and do business with each other and so on if we, uh, if we agree. And uh, yeah, that's, that's my choice. Like I take payments in whatever currency, uh, like gold, silver, uh, lots of different cryptos I've done. And, but I also have my regular daytime job where I just take a Canadian dollar salary. Uh, but I, yeah, again, like it's, uh, it's all about, uh, uh, you know, uh, voluntarily, you know, um, uh, uh, being involved and, and, and finding like-minded people and then, you know, getting getting involved with them and uh, starting, you know, like in, in Soviet um, in Soviet Union, there was parallel societies. That's why, you know, the everyone said like, oh, it's just complete breakdown of civilization in, in uh, Soviet Union. No, it, like people got along after that because they had parallel societies where they did things without you know the government knowing <laughs> basically and so on so like yeah, food, anyways. right Zaka gardens yeah all, all kinds of things like that mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um so yeah well i think we've come on the two hour mark so i would love to start wrapping up and uh john do you want to tell people how to they uh can reach you and i've got your website up here if that anyone wants to reach out for a consult or anything like that how they would do that yeah, basically, the economic truth is the website to go to. I, I would like to, like, I have a, I have a few other sites that I, I just find amusing to have. Like, one is uh, governmentisnonessential.com. I just have my manifesto on why I think government is uh, uh, not essential. Uh, and then I have um, another website called bankrun.org, uh, where I track bank runs around the world. Um, and... Um, uh, what else do I? Oh yeah, and I have my young global leaders uh, dot club list where I I show the people that you know that we're we're talking about the people in control. You know those kind of people is uh, I have a list of them that I that I created because a friend of mine said that you know if you create this list I'll give you some money. So uh, I did I did create it. It was a it was very it took months but uh, uh, it's worth it because there's uh, there's a lot of coherence and you find a lot of people there that makes sense that they're where they're at at, at these points so and, and where they got picked up it's it's very interesting so anyways uh that's that's websites fantastic john thanks so much for joining us and uh brandon thank you for, yeah thank you for having me on you're very welcome yeah great to reconnect and uh brandon do you want to let people know how they could reach you and work with you if uh they're attracted to doing that yeah, because what I focus on is just, look, let's just be realistic. Let's do what we can right now. Um, so you can reach me at the site listed below, safe-haven.co. Um, you can follow all my work on Telegram. That's uh, Safe Haven PMA on Telegram. If you do a search, you can find it that way. 
Good. And John, do you have a, a Telegram group as well? Yeah, it's called the Economic Truth. Same thing. Yeah, good. Yeah. We're consistent with both of you guys. So yeah, yeah. okay. So I'll get uh, a link to both of those. If you give me just one. Yeah, second. but I'll definitely, I'll definitely look up Brent's work. I always love to look at what other people do. So you guys appreciate would you being great. on. What was that? Sorry, John. I cut you off. Yeah, no, I appreciate Brendan for coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, I love to check his stuff out. So, mm -hmm, and follow mm -hmm. him. Yeah, no, you've been really generous, Brendan, in uh, sharing your knowledge. And uh, just every time I ask you to do something or invite you to do something, I should say, then you accept. I am grateful for, for that. And uh, yeah, it's been very interesting. And I probably need to go and listen again just to hear a little more closely. And I think that, I think we did, I think we did what we came to here to do to dispel some of the, the confusion and the myths that are out there. What do you guys think? I think, I think we make our own paradises, right? So like I live out here with my uh, nice garden and my little property and, and enjoying life and uh, just, just trying to talk to people and, and uh, you know, educate them about uh that uh, there could be a world without, uh, you know, a big uh, coercive government. So that, that's what I'm doing. Right, right. Actually, that was one one thing I was going to say, because we just finished the Primal Power course that Brennan contributed to, as well as Clint Richardson. And two of the archetypes are really one archetype that we study. It's the masculine feminine. And they are identical with the public and the private. And so if you go out into nature, you've got the, the predator and the prey, again, identical, left brain, right brain, you're talking about all of the same thing here. And no one would ever say like, oh yeah, we need to you know kill the masculine or we need to kill, you wouldn't be wise if you said you're gonna go kill the predators because you know for a fact those prey are gonna turn into predators on the land. Same with the right brain, left brain, they don't work on them on their own. Like I never did see anybody with a half a brain that that was fully alive. And so what you just said, John, I think is really accurate that, you know, to have this big behemoth out of balance, massive, overreaching kind of a public system is of no, you know, no, no good is coming of that. But if it was pared back, if it was very modest, if it was. I'm before that too, whatever is better than this. Like uh, I want my utopia, but I before that I would uh, agree with as well. So. Right, right. Yeah, because yeah, that balance is going to happen regardless. Like, even yeah. if you completely kill government, there will be, I think it's what Brandon would say, there's always people that are, are going to oh, no, they, it will come back again, 100%, into leadership. Yeah. Right, yeah. exactly. And then, you know, the King Heroes, that's the name of this podcast, and I highlight them for a reason. And but it but it goes both ways. You got you got the shadow of tyranny, the you know, power begets more power. And uh, they become the hungry ghost. And if they're if they're godless, we talked about that a little bit. Then they have absolutely nobody to check and balance them. And oh, yeah. uh, and that's what makes for a healthy king when you can have these kind of dialogues and discussions. And they can take feedback and consider things and learn, and uh, and then guide their people accordingly. So it's uh, yeah yeah. Oh, thanks everyone. We're getting some good feedback in the in the chat. Sounds like it was a worthwhile time to do this and uh, i was up till 2 a.m preparing it not to make anyone feel guilty or anything but so i'm very glad that uh this turned out nicely all yeah right. i appreciate all the time you put into it beth it's uh and, uh and brandon too likewise likewise that's i think that one thing we all definitely have in common is that we're we're purposeful right we have a, a particular trajectory in front of us and we're on it I haven't yeah. seen you let up. I haven't seen uh, John let up and, and I ain't letting up. <laughs> so, that's it. Perfect.
All right. Well, I hope everyone has a great rest of your day. Uh, dare I say there's a, an FE workshop in the House of Free Will tomorrow. So I know that's, that's not Brandon's subject, but uh, it, we're, do you know what FE is, John? No, I don't. Flatter. So then, yeah, you're not one of those either. I know people will just make fun of me. They'll come out of the woodwork to do that. But uh, <laughs> it's fun. One of our uh, one of our members and, and a coach that I've trained is a street activist and really passionate about this. And Flat Smack Biblical gets it. Fantastic. <laughs> come and join. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be fun because it's just seeing through different lens. And every time you do that, you challenge your perception. Mm -hmm. And when you challenge your perception, then you get to have more clarity because you're not married to the programming that creates that perception and uh yeah so more freedom more fun uh ton of workshops coming up the journey code coaching certification is now open for registration and application it is by application you can't just come up and uh and hit the button and even if you do then i'm still going to be interviewing you to see if it's a real right fit and uh it's a chance to not only deprogram yourself and go on your own hero's journey but learn how to help other people do that because that's how we do it to get ahead, to become the body of Christ. And uh, so that's something. If you want to connect with me about it, you can just email me, Beth at BethMartins.com or any of the channels, Facebook. By the way, all of these podcasts sooner or later end up on the podcast channels. So there's going to be iTunes and Spotify and Anchor FM and you name it out there. So if you're more of a listener than you are a watcher, you can always catch those a little bit after the fact. And I think that's all for now. So, so much love. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. My, right. Mine as well, guys. Okay. Thanks, John. Thanks, Beth. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Okay, you're welcome. Everybody's smiling. I love that. <laughs> Take care. Okay, yeah, you too. Okay, bye for now.